Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April 18th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. It's April 18th, not April 19th or 20. We're still in the present tense. My guest today writes about the future one way or the other. Uh, He's a best-selling writer. He writes books like Tomorrowland and Abundance and Bold, which in a quote-unquote non-fictional way imagines the future. He always also, I think, imagines our personal futures. He's a, a coach of reinvention of physical and emotional uh, reinvention. Uh, he's very much into borrowing from some language from his website, decoding flow states. Um, but on top of all that, he's also a novelist. He has a book coming out tomorrow called The Devil's Dictionary, a novel. Uh, many of you will know his work one way or the other. Uh, as I said, he's a best-selling author of, of many different books, Stephen Kotler. And he is Joining us today from perhaps the future, Northern Nevada, Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me, Andrew. It's good to be with you. So was that an unfair uh, introduction, Stephen? Are you someone who, in a sense, is 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 willing the future into being? Because um, as a nonfiction writer, you try to imagine the future, and now you're writing a novel where, of course, you can enter the future according to your own rules. So it's an interesting question, and I don't, I'm don't. i not going to say no. I am going to say that I personally have been hesitant to call myself a futurist, um, not including the, the, the sci-fi thrillers that I write, um, only because what I like to think of is that I report on kind of the facts and I'm a really good reporter and I've got a good nose for the cutting edge of things but I, I've tried to stay present tense focused and leave the prognostication about what happens to tomorrow to other people who might be more qualified for that that's how I've thought of myself um, mostly uh, obviously that that radically changes in my sci-fi thrillers where uh, their one of their whole points was I kept writing about the future and people kept asking me questions about it and because I tried to stay away from prognostication, I didn't have good answers. So in a sense, I created a world. I took all this stuff in our world. I rolled it forward five to 10 to 15 years. And then I started telling stories in that new world as a way to get a better understanding of it. So as I said, uh, you have books like Tomorrowland, Our Journey from Science Fiction to Science Fact, uh, The Art of the Impossible, a peak performance primer. I think all these have been bestsellers. Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think, written with Peter Diamantis. Uh, Bold, How to Go Big, Make Bank and Better the World. Um, why have you decided to write this novel? Because your nonfiction is enormously ambitious. How does a book like The, Nevel- the Devil's Dictionary supplement your nonfictional work? So... Uh, I'm going to give you sort of a, like a writer's answer to it, but one, a lot of my career, almost going back 30 years, have been on the environmental side of the equation, the animal rights side of the equation. I, I've covered those topics a lot as a reporter. My wife and I have co-run a, a dog sanctuary 
in hospice care facility for 20 years. Um, I've worked on various environmental issues. I founded a bunch of different environmentally minded companies, and I've tried to communicate some of these ideas. The first time I tried to communicate them in mass was in my book, A Small Furry Prayer. And the book did really, really, really well. And I was sent on a very big publicity tour and, and book tour. And but every day I met, all the fans who were coming out already believed everything sort of in the book. They knew about our current environmental crisis. They understood the issues around animal rights and animal welfare. They were already, they, I was preaching to the converted. And what I wanted to do was have this discussion with the general public. So I realized that with certain harder environmental ideas, it was hard to get people's attention through nonfiction. You, you just caught people who were already reading this stuff. But what I wanted to do in, in the sci-fi books is take these same ideas and put them into a sci-fi thriller that sort of snuck them more into people's consciousness. And we could talk about why I thought that was important, but that was sort of what I was trying to do. That answers your question. Uh, Stephen, are there, in a sense, two Stephen Kotkas, the one who writes very optimistic books about the future, not supposedly nonfiction books like Abundance and Tomorrowland, and then another Stephen Kotka who's worried about the future as an environmentalist, as an animal rights uh, activist. Are you simultaneously wearing two hats, or am I oversimplifying? So... The way I always look at it is my whole career has been focused on essentially the question of what does it take to achieve the impossible? When the impossible becomes possible, what, what's going on in that moment? And what you find, and some of this is covered in The Art of Impossible and the other half is covered in Bold and Abundance, is whenever the impossible becomes possible, you see people extending human capability. So that's peak performance, that's flow, that's all that work. And then you see people harnessing disruptive technology and that's abundance and tomorrowland and bold and that side of the equation that's usually what it takes to create the impossible now the disruptive technology that we now have at our disposal gives us the ability as, as peter and i discussed in abundance and bold to solve the world's greatest challenges including our environmental challenges but we also it's not a techno utopianist idea we think that this is possible we have the technology to solve the problems we still believe it's going to take the largest kind of cooperative effort in history. So that's everybody working together at their best. That means flow. Um, the problems, the impossible problems, I'm most interested in helping to solve are environmental in nature. So if you look at even the books on technology that I've written with Peter Diamandis, the way we divide up the labor in those books is if it's about neuroscience, psychology, or the environment, or anything that touches the environment, that's what I write. If it really helps human beings, that's usually what Peter writes. And where we tend to meet in the middle is education because it touches both both sides of, of what we do. But that's how I think about it. Does that help? Oh, it does. Stephen, um, we've done a number of shows about the environment, many shows. We do at least one a week, warning in particular about global warming, future of the planet. How does your new book, The Devil's Dictionary, approach that? Does it do it in a... Uh, does it do it in a dark way? Are you suggesting that um, we may be on the verge of a, some sort of climate dystopia? So the book is actually the opposite of that. And so is Last Tango, in a sense, meaning that in, these future, in this world, 
climate change and species die off, the largest environmental catastrophes we're now up against have been battled back against. We've, we've managed to mitigate some of the worst impacts of those. To do that, we've had to have a radical shift in society, and that's the world the book is set in, and that shift produces a whole bunch of problems of its own. Um, so from a climate fiction perspective, usually that's apocalyptic. I'm not apocalyptic about the big climate issues. Rather, I'm saying, no, no, let's say these got solved using the technology at our disposal, using the tools of peak performance, that sort of thing. But what will it create in the world? And there's always a cost. So that's what I'm looking at in the Devil's Dictionary is what happens, what the, the mind shift required to solve these challenges and what happens to society after that. It's a book about um, the fracturing of the human species. What does that mean and what impact does that fracturing have on other species? So it's interesting. And um, this, one of the things that started to happen in with when Silicon Valley sort of became uh, Silicon Valley is because people on a bunch of different uh, mental health spectrums can be better at math than others. Suddenly people on the spectrum started getting jobs uh, at really well-paying jobs like never before. It was, there was kind of a, a massive uptick in neural divergence in that community. And what you started to see is that neurally divergent people were you know, meeting each other and, and breeding and having children. And neuroscientists and geneticists were looking at this and they, they pointed out that, you know, if this keeps happening over X number of generations, you're going to end up with a new species. And I thought that was interesting. And I also thought something similar had been happening with empathy. So uh, if you measure empathy in a society, you notice that empathy tends to increase generationally. So millennials get have levels of empathy in their 30s that my generation had in our 40s and 50s and gen the younger generation so and we already know there are empaths in society people with extreme forms of empathy what i did is i took that that information and i rocked it forward and i said okay what happens if these empaths actually end up creating a break in our species line and you end up with kind of speciation and a new species development now as crazy and sci-fi as that sounds Historically, that was the case. Humans were one of many hominid species on Earth. We happen to live in a very peculiar time where the, we're one of the only ones left, but that wasn't how life on Earth was for most of the time we've been here. So I'm sort of looking at a future that actually mirrors our past more closely than our present, if that makes sense. It does, Stephen. We've done many shows on empathy. It's the, I refer to it as the E word because it comes up continually. Sherry Turkle, one of tech, Technology's most, uh, I yeah, think, uh, sure. prescient thinkers and writers has a book out called The Empathy Diaries. Are you suggesting this is no coincidence that we are preoccupied with empathy at a time when many of the structures that bring us together seem to be falling apart? So, yes, of course. I, yeah, I, I, I think um, I think that's very true, and. Um, so a couple of things that are worth pointing out here, first of all. Um, let's do a quick history of empathy, and then let's talk about why it matters so much from a neurobiological scientific reason. Um, empathy is an, actually a new idea. It, the word didn't exist until the 18th century, 
Um, there were other words that sort of got at the idea, but in the early 18th century, art critics were trying to figure out how is it that I can paint a painting, feel an emotion while I'm painting the painting, and then you can look at that painting and get that same sense of emotion that I felt while painting it. So they were trying to figure out how to emotion gets transported through like an object into another person. That was where empathy sort of originated, got translated out of German into English. Rilke played a role with this, the poet, and he started talking about empathy as sort of an emotional superpower, and it became a really hot idea. Interestingly, women's suffrage as a, as a giant movement, the anti-slavery movement um, in its most modern incarnation, and the uh, animal rights uh, movement all really came into their modern form within 10 to 15 years of that word showing up in the English language, which is interesting. Um, <clears throat> the reason empathy, I think, matters so much besides like giving us a way to think about feeling for another is, in, and the reason I write a lot of uh, The Devil's Dictionary is about empathy and what's called ecological awareness, sometimes called nature-relatedness, sometimes called cross-species empathy. So this is the idea that um, let me back up and, and start with a limitation of the human brain. One of the, if you go to most psychologists and say, hey, why are we in the middle of a giant environmental crisis? Why is everything environmentally falling apart? They're going to say it's an information processing bottleneck. The human brain takes in a ton of information every second. We can't process nearly all of it. So we discard millions and millions and millions of bits of information a second and process most everything else that shows up subconsciously. Consciousness is about 2,000 bits of information, so you take millions, reducing to 2,000 what we can pay attention to. Awareness is a couple hundred bits. So what we know is that the brain always is involved in survival, and so it always wants to sift and store for all the stuff that's important in the world we live in. In the modern world, we live in boxes, and we stare at boxes all day. And if we're looking at email, we're staring at boxes inside of boxes inside of boxes, and the brain thinks box world is what's important, and it filters out most of the rest. So if you talk to psychologists and neuroscientists and ask about climate change and species die-off in, in our current environmental crises, one of the things they point out is that because of this mechanism, most people don't actually see and perceive the natural world. The brain filters it out, so the stuff we're trying to save is invisible to most people. Problem A. Um, so to solve that, how do you solve it? It turns out empathy actually is what solves this problem. Empathy expands our so-called sphere of caring. Normally it's us, our family, maybe a couple close friends, but the more empathy you feel, you can expand it out to all humans, and then you can develop cross-species empathy, plants, animals, and ecosystems, until you get what I've been arguing for in The Devil's Dictionary, which is empathy for all, which is empathy for all living beings plants, animals, ecosystems, and humans as the mind. It sounds like a giant San Francisco, Stephen. Um, that's funny. I'm joking. You know I'm I, joking. You know I lived it's there the opposite of San Francisco. You know I lived there for a while. So right. I, I was joking. It's, it's what San Francisco would like to be when it grows up. I, I'm curious. The more I listen to you and the more I think about what you're saying, I'm wondering whether... We live in an age, as you've suggested, where empathy is becoming more and more uh, popular, fashionable, uh, seductive. But we also live in an age of anxiety. 
of this crisis of the self. Is there any connection? As we empathize with other creatures, other beings, other planets, other yeah, plants, so, are we undermining ourselves? Is that a danger? No, it's just the opposite. So um, nature-relatedness, which is the, 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 the term that most people use for like cross-species empathy right now, um, and this, the idea of nature relatedness, it's old. Like the, the fact that nature is good for us goes back to Hippocrates, and, and it, it's not a new idea, um, but there's a lot of research around it. So we know that time spent in nature, for example, is very good for us and increases serotonin levels. Uh, there's new research that was done in 2019 that shows it significantly lowers cortisol levels. This is why a 20 minute walk in the woods will outperform most SSRIs for treatments of anxiety and depression. Um, so we know that goes on. In flow, the state I study, one of the things that happens is nature relatedness and empathy both increase over time. This happens naturally. It's a byproduct of time spent in flow. And um, that's interesting. And one of the things that I've been looking at lately is I've been trying to figure out why. And uh, recently I was talking to uh, Dr. Paul Zak, who's sort of the world's leading expert on oxytocin and cooperation. And one of the things we were talking about is if you really have a sense of nature relatedness, for example, I love trees. Some of my best friends are trees, I like to say. And so what Paul and I were talking about is for people who feel as I do, when I go into nature, I don't just get the calming serotonin that most people get and the lowering of cortisol. I also get oxytocin, which normally, so it's a pro-social chemical that only normally shows up <clears throat> um, when we're in groups, right? And it tends to undermine group flow or underpin group flow. And it's got enormous health benefits and it's got enormous performance benefits, among other things. If you have nature relatedness, if you've used empathy to expand your sphere of caring into the natural world, when you go into the natural world, you're actually getting more feel good, performance enhancing neurochemistry from the natural world. To put it you know, in short, when we love nature, nature loves us back neurobiologically. It's fascinating. Looking at your work and the stuff on your website suggests to me that there's a, a kind of post-human element um, to, your, to your thinking. On the one hand, you're focused on unlocking hyper-focus, which I guess is an essential agency in human <clears throat> beings. And yet, in a way, you're kind of tempting us to leave our species. Is this the revenge of the animal lover, the revenge of someone who wants to empathize with other species? That's interesting. Um, that's funny. I don't actually think of it that way. Um, so let me, when I talk about peak performance, what I really mean is using our own biology for us rather than against us. Like nothing more or less. Airflow, which is technically defined as an optimal state of performance where we feel our best and perform our best, it's, it's a built-in factor of being, it comes natural in every human being. So anybody listening to this can get into flow and the uptick in performance available in flow is, is, is massive. It's, it's really significant. So first of all, I think, you know, this is more becoming more human and more kind of using what's built in in all of us to its full advantage than becoming superhuman. Now I will say one of the main reasons I started the Flow Research Collective, the training side of the business, we're a research and training company. And on the research side, 
we're partnered with Imperial College London, USC, Stanford, UCLA, a bunch of other uh, academic institutions. And uh, we, you know, look at the neurobiology of peak human performance. On the training side, we train everybody from Fortune 500 companies to individuals, and we work in 130 countries, so we're all over the world um, doing this work. And I always tell people, I started the research side because I am interested in understanding how flow works in the brain, and that's a passion project. That's my lifelong quest to really understand that in as much detail as possible. The training side, I was less interested in training other people. I started the training business, one, because I would hope people would use the peak performance tools that I was, that I was helping them learn about um, to solve clan global challenges. Whether it's you want to help humans, or you want to help plants, animals, and ecosystems, poverty, energy scarcity, water shortages, climate change, and the like. That's what I want people to do with it. And the good news is, I'm smuggling empathy and environmental awareness and ecological awareness into people who are interested in peak performance. So people are coming to me not because they want more empathy or environmental awareness, but they're coming to me because they want to be 500% more productive at work and flow can make that possible under the right circumstances. Uh, as part of the trade, you're gonna end up caring more about plants, animals, and ecosystems, and that's cool for me. Like I'm good with that trade. If I'm doing anything sneaky, and because I'm not super thrilled with how mankind has treated plants, animals, and ecosystems, that's the sneaky thing I'm doing. And is that narrative part of the devil's dictionary? Because there's a, a science fictional element. So what I did in the devil's dictionary. that narrative to the way you present yourself. So nature-relatedness, it's not just flow that tends to increase. It flows in an altered state of consciousness. There are lots of different altered states of consciousness. Some are psychedelic states, dream states, trance states, meditative states, flow states, etc. Um, it turns out a lot of these altered states of consciousness, including a lot of psychedelic states, right. massively increase nature relatedness and, as by extension, uh, environmental activism. And this is well known. In fact, Robin Card Harris, who has a very, very prominent neuroscientist who works out of Imperial College London. Uh, recently just published a paper on psychedelics. I think he looked at MDMA, psilocybin, and LSD. I might be wrong on one of those. Uh, all increased nature relatedness and environmental activism. So we know this can happen in a psychedelic. What I've done in the Devil's Dictionary is I created an extremely powerful futuristic version of that psychedelic that doesn't just increase nature relatedness. It gives us like, like a deep soul to soul level connection um, with animals. So it's a really, really deep uh, equality that emerges in the psychedelic and uh, you end up seeing the world from the animal's perspective. And what that does is push nature relativists to the nth degree. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, really take that up a notch because I think that's what's going to be required to go after climate change and species die off. Like if we really want to tackle the environmental challenges we now face. I've been working on this shit for 30 years. They're impossibly hard challenges. We're going to need people to care about trees and plants and animals the way we care about our kids. That's what it's going to take. So that's the world I created. Are you suggesting then that perhaps the best way to imagine or to be empathetic towards trees or plants? We've done a number of shows on this as well. Many people have written books about embracing plants and trees and defending them is through psychedelics? No, I'm not. So 
you mind if I tell you a slightly longer dog story? No, nah, Stephen, you, you don't need my permission. You know you don't need my permission. You can say whatever you want. Okay. So, uh, Although I have to I say that your sound is a little scratchy. So um, I, I don't know how it sounds to you, but to me it's a little scratchy. But hopefully it works. All right. I'm going to do two things. I'll plug in a new pair of headphones, and, uh, and then I'll tell you a dog story. Hello, Andrew? Yeah, that's much better. Oh, excellent. I'm sorry about that. The old ones were not. I've been having really weird uh, earbud headphone trouble uh, since, they, since the latest operating system for my Mac. Anyways, I apologize for that. Uh, so here's the, you asked, do I think psychedelics is the best way to increase uh, nature relatedness? I uh, personally don't. I think flow and time spent in flow is incredibly effective, but at a really simple level, um, I learned it. I first uh, had this experience. So when my wife and I founded our hospice care and special needs dog sanctuary, uh, we, so we, we did this about 50, 20 years ago at this point. Uh, we started a hospice care and special needs dog sanctuary in the second poorest county in America with the highest incidence of animal cruelty. So we put ourselves on the, on the front lines and we wanted to do all the really hard stuff that, that nobody else wanted to do. And my wife looked at me when we were coming up with this idea and she basically was like, I'm tough enough to take it. What about you? And I had not really, I'd done some animal rescue, but not at the level that was about to descend on me. And I, but I got called out by my wife. So I was like, okay, I can take it. Absolutely. Bring it on. And we had been living with like eight or nine dogs in our pack. And very quickly we went up to about 25, 30 dogs. And there's sort of a phase change in pack behavior around 13 dogs I discovered. And like, by 25, 30 dogs, man, like stuff gets really complicated and we don't deal with normal dogs. So like a lot of our dogs are, if you're like a three-legged, one-eyed dog with late stage cancer, mange, kind of, you know, some kind of brain damage and you were seriously abused, you're our guy. Like that's what we worked with. And so even as they would start to get healthier and happier, their personalities would emerge. Part of those personalities, a lot of these dogs were, are a little bit crazy, could be a little bit aggressive. And a lot of them hated men. They'd been abused by men. And so I would find myself, for example, there was one little dog we had, Misha, tiny little chihuahua, but he would bite me every chance he got. And he would, I'd get up in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, I'd go take a piss. Misha would be there waiting for me as I got back in bed to bite my ankles. And if you've ever gotten bit, bit at like three o'clock in the morning, it's not, you're not, like, it's not a good thing. And you can't scream at a traumatized dog. You make it worse. And then I discovered your wife gets really angry with you. So that's bad. And Misha started doing this thing where I would, we had, we took over an old farm and our, my office, my writing shack was at the back of our fields. And I'd walk back at the end of the work day to the house. And, you know, I've got, my head is filled with work stuff and I'm trying to transition back into home life. And I've got a couple hundred yards to do it. And Misha started hiding out and laying in wait for me to try to attack me. And things were going downhill fast. I needed a solution. And I decided that, you know, I had sort of been playing lip service to equal rights for animals, but here was a test case. Like I had to start thinking about Misha as if Misha was another human being who was having a nutty. And like, I, so I started thinking about, instead of being attacked by Misha, I came up in a family 
I had a couple of brothers. When one of us went crazy for whatever reason, right, the others didn't really try to make it worse. They tried to make it better. And, I, you know, they got treated with love and respect and whatever. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start doing that with Misha. He's going to attack me, and I'm just going to pretend he's my brother having a nutty. And what happened was, after a couple of weeks of this, of really seeing Misha as a human being, just as another human being, not in any way different from any other human being, my perception expanded in an incredible amount. I suddenly started noticing details in Misha's behavior I'd never seen before. And suddenly I could start to see when he would get a little stressed out and I could diffuse that long before he started attacking me. And it was, everything changed. And I started noticing all this other stuff about animal behavior. And I was like, oh wow, this is a nature relatedness phenomenon. This is the opening of perception that I've read so much about. This is a really extreme example. How can more people get this? One, I, so I put it into my books, The Devil's Dictionary and Last Tango, so people can get a sense of what that perspective is like. I also have talked about flow as a way to get more towards this. Psychedelics will get you there. But literally, I think you could start with the plants and animals in your own life. You can literally run the same experiment I ran. If you've got a dog or a cat. Right, or and you don't plants. have to take psychedelics. All you need to do is get up at three in the morning. Stephen, um, one of the quotes from your website from the village voice uh, says uh, what Kotler is uh, this is about your your broader work what Kotler is seeking is nothing less than the big explanation but what happens if there isn't a big explanation what happens if everything is random well i have always said um first uh, of all, and before yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt uh, is that fair i mean are you looking yeah. for a big explanation I, it is, it is they, they were specifically talking about the work I was doing when I was writing my, my book, Last to Jesus, and just sort of starting out. Um, and a lot of what I was working on then was the neurobiology of so-called mystical experience. So what goes on in the brain when we have out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences or flow states, broader altered states kind of stuff. That's what they were talking about. But I think it's fair to say that I am very interested in some large philosophical questions about, you know, where does consciousness come from and what are humans actually capable of and things along those lines. And that's never changed, but I've always maintained, I don't have a problem with the mystery. I'm, I'm not somebody who thinks you're going to get an entire explanation. I think there's always going to be a bunch we don't understand. And whatever level of understanding, when we get to a point where we're like, okay, now we've got this figured out, something shows up, quantum physics, the microbiome, take your pick. And suddenly we're like, oh shit, there's a whole new level of understanding that we didn't even know existed, right? And, and that gunks things up. So I, I think understanding even the big explanation, it's, it's, it's a relative, like at this scale, maybe, but next scale up, next scale down, not so sure. And I'm actually cool with the mystery. I like it. We had Wendy, um, Australian writer, Wendy Seifert, is about as opposite from you as you can get. She's a, a nihilist. She has a new book out, The Sunny Nihilists. Do you think the nihilists, uh, the subtitle of the book is a declaration of the pleasure of pointlessness. Do the ni might the nihilists have a case? Hmm. I, th yeah. I think you could... They might have a case philosophically. They might even have a case psychologically, but neurobiologically, um, I'm, this is not to say that we, like there isn't a world, like there's a version of our world where narcissists um, can triumph, 
right? But uh, as a general rule, our neurobiology doesn't seem to be wired that way. So like nihilism, for example, denies the fact that, you know, a huge, that pro-social neurochemistry that comes from collaboration and cooperation from more than just the self is a huge driver in human motivation. Without pro-social neurochemistry, you're getting rid of serotonin, oxytocin, you know what I mean? Like these are big, some of endorphins, these are big drivers of human behavior. So I don't think the neuroscience of nihilism stands up over time. But that's an opinion. I like, I really would have to do more research to give you a hard and fast answer on that one. Well, Stephen Kotler, um, you don't like being called a futurist, but I meant it in a, a complimentary way. You're certainly one of our most thoughtful thinkers about the future, whether that makes you a futurist, I'm not sure. Uh, and certainly uh, your new uh, novel, uh, which is out tomorrow, The Devil's Dictionary, is an important um, Kotler statement about imagining the future, imagining the future of empathy, of other species, of humans. So it's an important work. Congratulations on that. Uh, in addition uh, to The Devil's Playground, Stephen, what else should people be reading in these perhaps post-human times or potentially post-human times? So I was thinking, uh, I'm going to give you... Uh... Fiction book and a nonfiction book. On the fiction side, uh, the most imaginative, well-realized, and mind-blowing experience I've had in a long time was Andrew Yu's How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe. Andrew's gotten a lot of attention for his most recent book, Alternative Chinatown, um, which mm. is great. But if you go back one to How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, it is one of the most, it's as a, as a novel, as a piece of writing, as a piece of art, it's world-class as a meditation on time and loss and regret, like I've never seen anything like it. And it's the story of an out of work time machine repairman. So how can it go wrong? Yeah, it's just, it's we a, need to get Andrew on the show actually, that would be fun. He, oh, it would be so fun. He's like, God, does he blow me away. Uh, and the nonfiction side, mostly because the Devil's Dictionary is coming out tomorrow and the book that really start, I was a planet animal geek going way back, but the book that framed up the argument and a lot of the ideas I have and sort of everything that I've built on and whether it's like in abundance and talking about using uh, disruptive technology to solve environmental challenges or the stuff we've been talking about today on empathy, whatever. David Quammen, who uh, is a, a biologist by training and a naturalist and has written a bunch of books, but he wrote a book called The Song of the Dodo back in the 90s. That is, if you want to have a really deep systems level understanding of the environmental challenges we now face and the actually opportunities for change the song of the dodo it to me it's it's like the textbook i often said if there's one book that you know i could have world leaders read before assuming taking office it's the song of the dodo well speaking of world leaders stephen cotler on uh, april 18th 2022 uh, who are our world leaders who's in charge of the world uh, these days stephen so i <laughs> I am not 100% certain you can deny Bostrom simulation hypothesis. <laughs> so I'm not entirely sure we're not inside a simulation, inside a simulation. Already? Simulation. We're in Bostrom's world of uh, I, I smart I, uh, paper clips? I'm, and I think there's a glitch in the matrix. So I'm not like, I, 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 think, we're, I think we're in the simulation and I think the simulation is maybe breaking free from the simulation. But again, 
I like the mystery, and that's the best guess I got today on April. What did you say? It's April 18th? April. It's April 18th in San Francisco. I don't know what it is in northern Nevada. Either do I, actually. But uh, <laughs> theoretically. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, we may be, I think we were in a simulation. I don't know where it got established, but I think it's glitched. And, uh, and the simulation is now evolving on its own.